Our text that we will study this morning is Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53. Here's the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs he has, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord God, your, your word is so rich and so beautiful. Help us understand how to better worship and love Jesus because of this word, here that we hear this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus Christ came to earth on a mission. It was a mission that was perfectly predicted centuries before it took place. It was a mission that he perfectly completed. It was a mission that takes the child from the manger through a perfect human life to the cross and out the empty tomb. It was a mission in which God the Son would come and do the work, the only possible work that could ever accomplish our salvation, and it is still the only work that would ever accomplish your salvation. 
The passage we study, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, is often uh, called the servant song of Isaiah. It was written around 700 years before the death of Jesus on the cross. Don't ever forget that in this process. But it reads like an expert eyewitness account of Jesus' crucifixion. Better than an eyewitness account, though, this text explains to us why the death of Jesus on the cross is vitally important. So this morning, we're going to look fairly quickly at Isaiah's servant song, and we're going to look at Jesus as God's perfect servant. And as we do, even from your homes all across the world right now, ask God to help you to be amazed by God's perfect plan. And as you are amazed, let it lead you to worship Jesus and rely on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation. There'll be five points. If you want to write points down, there'll be five of them. They all talk about things we will marvel at as we talk about God's perfect servant. So the first one is this. Marvel at God's shocking plan. Marvel at God's shocking plan. Isaiah 52, that last three verses, 13 to 15, say this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Listen up. Heads up. Pay attention. Hear me. All of those are phrases that we use to get somebody's attention. Mark Antony and Julius Caesar spoke the famous lines to start a speech. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And words like that are designed to make you focus on what is to come. Because what is to come has extraordinary value. In verse 13, the prophet says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The behold says, don't miss this. A thing is coming. A thing is being promised. A thing is being said that is wonderful to hear. And the Bible is full of this recurring, repeated promise of God. From the time of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God has promised and promised and promised that he was going to send into the world a person who would crush the head of the devil and who would bring God's blessing to every nation. And this one who is to come, this promised rescuer of men and women, he's going to be descended from the woman Eve. He's going to be descended through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is going to be a king from the family tree of King David. He is God's chosen, anointed, promised king who is coming. Those words for the promised one, the chosen one, the anointed one, that's Christ. That's Messiah. Well, here in verse 13, God is promising that he's going to send a servant, and the servant is going to be someone who acts wisely, who prospers. He's going to be three things, high, lifted up, greatly exalted. He is triply praised. He is supremely praised. And any Jew from the 8th century BC, from the 700s BC, could have only believed that there was one person that God was talking about here. This has to be Messiah. This has to be the promised 
coming king. This has to be the one God has been promising from the beginning. He is coming and he's going to reign. And the reader would hear this and the reader would celebrate. And then comes verse 14, which has a shocking turn. As many were astonished at you. Isaiah says, in just the same way that many people were astonished, they were horrified as they looked at you people. What does he mean? In the same way that people were horrified when they saw the nation of Israel carried off captive by the Assyrians in the year 722 BC. In the same way that the walls of a great city were, were, were taken down and people were led in chains to other lands. As horrifying as that looked, and I'm not giving you the horrible details, there were as much uglier things than what I just said. There's something equally horrifying that's going to be happening, and it's going to be horrifying about the promised servant. Verse 14 then continues, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. His appearance, the appearance of the servant, that of the coming Messiah, that appearance is going to be marred. Isaiah says the servant to come is going to be brutalized. He's going to be disfigured. He's going to be bloodied and swollen and bruised so much that to some people he's going to look almost inhuman. And the reader wants to say, no, not the servant, not the Messiah. That doesn't make sense. How could that be? Why would that happen? So verse 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The servant is going to sprinkle the nations. And the word sprinkle here is a priestly term. The Levitical priests back in the Jewish system, they would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice in order to make atonement for sin. The servant, God's promised servant, is going to sprinkle nations. But not with the blood of an animal sacrifice. No, no. The servant with his own blood is going to bring atonement. He's going to bring forgiveness. And he is going to set people apart for God as the people of God. Finishing verse 15. Kings, it says, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The kings of the world are going to be so astonished. God's plan is so shocking. It is so shocking, it's going to be enough to make even politicians shut their mouths. Kings will have nothing to say about this. So these three verses at the end of Isaiah 52 tell us God's plan. It is unbelievable. It is shocking. So what are we supposed to do with it when we read it? You're supposed to feel the emotion that the prophet intends for you to feel, marvel at the shocking plan of God. And then you can turn to chapter 53 as the song continues. Point number two, marvel at God's surprising servant. Marvel at God's surprising servant. Look at Isaiah 53, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, verses one through three. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man, a man of sorrows um, and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The question is here in verse 1, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They follow what we just saw. There's no, there's no break here between 52 and 53. A servant is going to come. He's going to be exalted. He's going to suffer in order to cleanse and forgive people from many nations. He's going to be physically marred beyond all recognition, yet he will prosper and kings will be silent. The question is, who believes this? Who has seen God's power demonstrated like this? Who is privy to God's plan? And the assumed answer here is nobody. Nobody believes this 700 years before it happens. God has basically kept this plan a mystery. Why is it so hard to believe? Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That description of a young plant out of dry ground, it's like a sapling tree, a root out of dry ground. It's like, like a bush in the desert, a little scrubby desert bush. What's the point? Second half of verse 2 tells us, nothing about the physical appearance of the servant is striking. He's not stately looking. He's not majestic. He's, he's like a sapling. He's not like a mighty cedar of Lebanon. He's like a scrubby desert bush. He's not like a beautiful flower. The coming servant is not going to have the pedigree many people want him to have. He's not going to be from the right town. He's not going to be a wealthy mover and shaker. He's not going to be a head taller than everyone in the crowd. He's not going to be some handsome prince charming. No, the servant of God is going to look ordinary. And thus people will not believe that he is the promised servant. They're not going to believe that he's the coming Messiah. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The coming servant is going to be, the Bible says, despised. The elite are not going to embrace him. He will not be kingly looking. He's going to be a man of sorrows. His life is going to be full of sadness. He's going to know much grief. And men will hide their faces from him. Why? Maybe because of the ugliness of what he suffers, they will turn away. I don't want to see that. Maybe they will turn their face away as a desire to show that they have contempt for him. Perhaps just to ignore him. But he is despised. He is rejected. He is not valued. He's not respected. He's not esteemed. And this is why people don't believe the message. Isaiah predicts the Messiah, but not first as a conquering hero. Instead, he will suffer and he will be rejected. Ask yourself, what happened when Jesus came on the scene? Everything Isaiah just said is what happened. Isaiah wrote it 700 years beforehand. He was ordinary, Jesus was, in appearance. He came from the wrong town. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He had no wealth. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The elite rejected him, and Jesus carried with him many sorrows. So yes, the servant was a surprise. Nobody expected that God would save the world like this. Nobody expected the Messiah to come, God to come in flesh and spend his first night in a manger 
either. But then God is all about doing things that nobody expects, isn't he? Marvel at God's surprising servant. And then thirdly, marvel at the suffering of God's servant. Look at verses 4 through 6. They read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When you read verse 4, emphasize the word our. When you read verse 5, emphasize the word our. He bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. We despised him because of his sorrow and his grief. But it turns out that those were our sorrows he was dealing with. Yet we esteemed him smitten, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. The people thought he must be suffering for his own sin. God must be mad at him if he lets him go to, go to a cross, right? Something that the, the servant must have done must be the, the source. The Jews around the cross mocked Jesus. They said, oh... Maybe God will bring him down from that cross if he wants him. Verse 5 then says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. See, it was not his own sin that was the issue. The servant is our substitute. He will suffer, but it's for us. He will be punished, but it's in our place. He will be wounded. He will be pierced because of our transgressions, our willful sins. He will be crushed, smashed to pieces emotionally for our iniquities. He will be chastised. He will be corrected, but for things that we deserve. By his stripes, literally the bruises that one gets in a beating, by his stripes, we will find healing. Verse 6 then says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All of us, we as a whole, have gone astray. We're like sheep who've wandered away from the flock. Each one of us, each individual one of us has chosen his own path. We've all tried to do our own thing. We've all tried to choose our own path instead of going on the one that God would command us to follow. We're guilty of sin. We deserve punishment. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God lays our sin on Jesus. And the term there, lay, in the Hebrew, it sometimes is translated fall. It's a violent term. It's, a, it's like when two forces meet in a clash on the battlefield. One side falls upon another. Our sins fall upon, they crash down upon the servant. Why? Because the Lord has made it so. The servant is going to suffer. We saw that in chapter 52. But now we see that he will suffer, but for us. It's because of you and me that Jesus suffered. He didn't do anything to earn his suffering. Men despised Jesus, but it was because he was carrying their burden that he received the scorn. He stood in our place. He stood as our substitute. Marvel at the suffering of God's servant. He carried our burdens, but it goes further than that. Point number four. Marvel at the sacrifice of God's servant. Marvel at the sacrifice of God's servant. Isaiah 53 verses 7 through 9 say this. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And, who, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was unfairly treated. He was suffering for the crime that somebody else committed. But unlike you or I would react, Jesus did not open his mouth. He did not complain. He was like a sheep. He was docile, gentle. Reminds us of a lamb being led to the sacrificial altar. He was not screaming about the injustice being done. He just walked according to the will of God. And again, we see Jesus. Think about Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. He doesn't even make a defense for himself. He is silent. He could have gotten away from the cross. He could have talked his way out of the suffering, but he chose to go to the cross. Then verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Oppression and judgment. Think about the mock trial. The illegal sentencing of Jesus. He was unfairly treated when he was taken in by the soldiers. He was tried unfairly, and the verdict that was given was an absolute farce. And as for his generation, it says, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? What about his generation, the question says. Someone might ask about his offspring. Does he at least have a family? Did he at least have children before he died? And the answer is no. He instead was cut off out of the land of the living. This is a violent cutting like you would chop down a tree or just snap off the end of a vine. He was cut off, not only led to slaughter, he actually is slaughtered. The servant will die. He will die young. He will die with no offspring. And to the Jew, this was a great curse. Why will he die? He dies for the transgression, God says, of my people. He will die for the sins of others. They deserve to receive this stroke, this cutting blow, but the servant dies in their place. Like a sacrificial lamb, he dies because of their guilt. But then verse 9, look at this. And they made his grave with the wicked, which is what you expect, and with a rich man in his death, which is not although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This little detail reads like something written in the first century, but it was written 700 years before Christ. The prophet sees that the servant is supposed to be buried like a criminal. He's assumed to be a criminal by the authorities, but his body is not going to be buried like a criminal's body. He's not going to be thrown in the town dump like the criminals. Instead, his body is buried like the body of a rich man. Remember when Jesus died? Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they took Jesus' body. They, they buried him. They anointed him. They wrapped him up like a rich man. And they laid him in a brand new, never before used stone tomb. He was buried like a rich man, not like a criminal. And God says this is because he was not a criminal. How incredible is this? It was written 700 years before it happened, and it's God's fulfillment of his word, step by step, piece by piece. 
Jesus suffered for your sin and for mine. He died as a sacrificial lamb for you and for me. He died to take the stroke that was due for me and for you. And he was buried exactly as the Bible predicted 700 years before it took place. Marvel, friends, at the sacrifice of God's servant. And if you've been paying attention all this last week, that takes us through Good Friday. But praise be to God, the story doesn't end there. Because if the story ended right here, the story would end hopeless. Point number five, marvel at God's servant, our risen Savior. Marvel at God's servant, our risen Savior. Verses 10 through 12, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 10 tells us, it was God's will to crush the servant, what happens with the servant actually pleases God. It is God's will, God's good pleasure, God's eternal plan. Even though the servant is crushed, even though he is put to grief. Well, what happens? His soul made an offering for guilt. The servant dies and he dies for the guilt of others. So what's going to happen since this occurs? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Did you hear that? He shall see his offspring, but, but, but wait a minute. In the last section, we said he was cut off before he had any generation. He didn't have any children, didn't have any offspring. How is he going to see his offspring? He's going to prolong his days, but wait a minute. We see him dead and buried. He's cut off. How can he live a long life? It says the will of the Lord is going to prosper in the hand of the servant, but how? There's only one possible way this can happen. The servant who dies must live again. This is not reincarnation. This is the resurrection of the servant from the dead. That's why the church exists. That's why we celebrate Jesus. That's why Sunday matters because it's the day the Lord rose from the grave. Jesus died for our sins, but he doesn't stay in the grave. Jesus lives. His days are prolonged, quite prolonged, actually. He lives forever in an eternal, living, breathing body. His offspring, that is all the people who have become children of God because of Jesus, because of his life and death and his resurrection, they are truly seen today. And the will of God does prosper in his hand. The glory of God is demonstrated in his Son. Then verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, oh, how anguish, how much anguish he faced, he shall see and be satisfied. Because of Jesus' suffering, on the other side of that suffering, he's going to see. What's he going to see? He's going to see the pleasure of God. He's going to see the multitudes saved. He's going to see the prolonged life of the resurrection. By his knowledge is the right, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus 
totally knowing what he's doing, is going to justify many people. He's going to lift away and carry off their sins. This is the gospel. You're a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. So am I. Jesus died and took that punishment for every person who will come to him. You can be justified. God can treat you as if you had never committed any sin and you know sin has characterized your life. God can treat you as if you've been perfect. How could God do that and still be just? It's because the price is paid fully in Jesus. Verse 12 then says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. These are verses of reward. The servant is going to have the spoils of victory. The servant is going to be glorified. He's going to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, which is the thought the song opened with in 52.13. Why is he exalted? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why is he exalted? He's exalted because he willingly died for the sins of others. He took their guilt on himself, though he was not guilty, and he died. And now Jesus, the servant, lives because his work is done, because he is exalted. And we marvel at the the servant of God because he is our risen Savior. Is this the message of the Bible consistently? Is that what the Bible teaches beginning to end? All this stuff about the one who comes and suffers and dies and then is exalted? Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, speaking of Jesus, says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to his status. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, note that word, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's all that suffering of the servant. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, what we read in Isaiah 52, 53 is the message of the Bible from the beginning to the end. God promised a savior a conquering king. But the king came in a surprising way. He came first as a humble servant. He was rejected by men. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay for the sins of other people and he powerfully, perfectly, permanently, gloriously conquered death and conquered the grave. And I want to make just two points of application here. First, if you're not yet a Christian, come to Jesus. He offers you eternal life. He'll forgive you of your sins. How can you be forgiven? Receive Jesus in faith. Stop living for yourself. Stop living as your own master. Stop thinking you get to make the way for yourself. Stop living in sin. Instead, believe in Jesus. Believe he lived for for your life, that he died to take your death, that he rose from the grave to give you life. Ask him, please, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I want to follow you. If you turn to Jesus, trusting Jesus, asking Jesus for forgiveness, he will give you 
life forever and follow Jesus. That's our second point of application. Follow Jesus. If you're a Christian, give Jesus thanks. He died for you. He took your pain and he's alive right now, physically more alive than you've ever been. He's highly exalted, so worship him. Live for him. Marvel at him and thank the Lord Jesus on this, a glorious resurrection Sunday. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. This is a stunning, glorious mystery that the promised king would be the suffering servant who would live, die, and rise to pay the price for our sins. We trust Jesus. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know you died to pay the price for my sins after living a life of perfection that I could never live. I pray that my sins are punished in you on the cross. I pray that your perfect life would be applied to mine. By faith, I trust you, Jesus. I thank you for rising from the grave and I thank you for the promise of eternal life and I pray that you will apply that to us, that we will live forever in your grace. God, for everyone who hears this message who does not yet know you, I pray you will save souls. For those who do know you, I pray that we will live worshiping you and glorifying you forever. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.